1: Hello everyone. This is uh, Dr. Carrie Beating from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. And welcome to another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I am joined by my two charming partners, uh, Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center. Hi, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey! All right. So, now that the world has kind of opened up more, we can venture back into the world of shopping. And Yay! I yes, <laughs> I'm a shopper. I love to shop. I am not a shopper, but was looking to uh kill a couple hours and went to was like Michaels because yes, I am that person. We are planning our office Christmas party. And yes, I know it's June, but you're those
2: people who go and buy all that crap in
1: June for Christmas. Damn straight. And I was pissed. I could not find it. And Abby is showing me her Michael's bag and I am appreciative. I go there about every week, Carrie. (laughs) I was not actually pissed. I didn't see anything because usually I don't expect to see anything until late August. Um, but was definitely kind of hoping because I'm going to redo my Christmas stuff this year because I've had the same stuff for a decade um, and it's time. And so I got all excited about it and then went there and got the sharp reminder of it's not even 4th of July yet. Um, so yes, I am that person, but what have you guys been shopping for?
2: I just got a new dining room table. Well, it's not here. Like I bought it. It's like at some warehouse. Be
0: prepared. It may be three or four months before you get it.
2: <laughs> well, we have to go get it from the warehouse. And the problem is the warehouse is like two hours away from where we are or Ooh. about an hour and a half and love my husband, but he's, a a bit on the frugal side. So he, he doesn't want to pay for the (laughs) delivery people and he wants to put it together himself. So we're going to have to go get it, but I'm so excited because I haven't had a new dining room table since we, since I started fellowship, which was in 2009. So 12 years, my table looks like it's been around that long. Like it, it has like missing pieces of like Wood veneer and like there's there's just things that it can never be remedied. Our our plan for our old table is we're gonna sand it down and it's gonna be a a work table out in our garage. But I am so excited.
1: So how many moves had that previous table been through?
2: So that move went from Minnesota when I was in fellowship to New Braunfels, and from that house I moved. I have moved. One, two, three. So four total moves in the life of this table.
0: So what are you going to do with the table now? Are you going to refurbish it or recycle it or sell it? Or?
2: The old table, we're going to sand it down and it's going to be a, um, we're going to turn it. It's it's one of those like uh, counter height tables. Yeah. They were really popular for a while. Yeah. And um, so it has a leaf you can put in the middle and it makes it a square, but we usually have it as a as a rectangle. So we're going to sand it down and put wheels on it and put it out in our garage as ah. a as a workbench because so, it's, it's at a good height, you know, Yeah,
0: that's a great idea.
2: It's the height that you would want something at. You're not bending down to work on it. And so, um, we are, we are going to repurpose it. So we are, we are being, we are being responsible. Well,
0: we are thinking about making a change in our house as well. We're thinking about redoing our kitchen. Oh, that's big. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, until I started, you know, right after the pandemic, everybody, you know, like decided they wanted to do everything all at once. And we were in that the midst of those people. And, you know, I didn't realize that the the cost of lumber I saw in the news the other day, a two by four was like $3 last year, and it's like $8 now. (laughs) And just getting cabinets and all that is really challenging. So I don't know, we may end up putting it on the back burner, but we actually had somebody come and look at our house and he's going to give us an estimate. So when I see the price, my eyes may bug out of my head Maybe I decide not to do it. But um, it's fun to think about anyway.
2: <laughs> you know, it's interesting when you're looking at like the price of things like buying the table wasn't that big of a deal. But the idea of buying the chairs to go with the table, yeah. that's where I'm like, chairs are brutal. chairs are going to cost more than the table did.
0: Yeah. Because there's a lot of detail work in the chairs, I think make them so much more expensive. These
2: are chairs. I'm going to buy them from Amazon. You know, I'm like, (laughs) these are not like fancy dancy chairs and they're going to cost more than the table. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. It's pretty wild. All right. So tables, chairs, and Christmas decorations aside, (laughs) what is our question of the day? Okay.
2: So our listener tells us a little bit of background. I had a miscarriage at 12 weeks in September, 2020 had a DNC, um, have been trying to conceive since without success. They've been tracking their ovulation and get a peak result around cycle day 13. Um, and, um, cycles average about 24 days. And it's been like that for a long time. Um, they, this person has seen their OB-GYN and they ordered blood work to check out hormones on specific cycle days like cycle day 21 and cycle day three and a pelvic ultrasound. This person is 34 turning 35 this year. They've had one successful pregnancy about two and a half years ago. Um, she's worried about hormone imbalance since the luteal cycle is shorter than expected, but also questioned scar tissue from this person's previous C-section and DNC. I am confident in my OB and trust him but I am wondering at what point should I seek out a reproductive endocrinologist. I love listening to you all and find so much peace and comfort in all your discussions. Thank you. So,
0: I think one of the reasons to seek out a REI is just the frustration factor and I think certainly you've had a lot of frustration over the past couple of years and the other other reason too is, you know, even the American Society for Reproductive Medicine recommends that if you're 35 or older and it's been more than six months since you've had a successful pregnancy, it's reasonable to see a reproductive endocrinologist. And I just think reproductive endocrinologists um, are more equipped to see you on more of a regular basis and to kind of really dive deep into the causes for your fertility. It sounds like your OBG Wayne's doing a great job, but I just think you might feel better if you have somebody there that's kind of more in tune with what you're going through right now and, and kind of able to take kind of the next step and do a little bit more aggressive therapy.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that as well. I mean, just having had one miscarriage is not not necessarily a reason to freak out, but it's been two and a half years since your last live birth. And, you know, some of that time was probably spent in just drowning, having a newborn and feeding the child and helping them to sleep and helping them to not die on a regular basis because doctors <laughs> have no sense of self-preservation whatsoever. Um, but But even then, we know that we've got a solid, you know, eight, nine months of, not conceiving, and so all right, let's let's go into it. And um, and I, I agree with Abby in that the peace of mind in doing that is very helpful, and just having someone who's got the time. You know, one of the things that a lot of patients don't realize is that as specialists, particularly with what we do, a general OBGYN has about. Anywhere from five to fifteen minutes to see any given patient, and that is not through any fault of their own. That's largely how the insurance system works, so that they can get paid enough to pay their office staff. Um, but part of the way that we we are equipped is that we have that time to go into things, and so that's what we do. Because as specialists, it's our job to nail down all the nitty gritty details and order the tests and explain them to you. So you don't freak out about going to get them and you have a level of comfort. And so, yeah, I, I think, you know, you're getting, you're getting pretty close to the time where it's worthwhile to go see somebody.
2: I concur. You know, I, I I think gut feeling, intuition, whatever you want to call it has a lot of value in fertility care uh, I mean, th- there are people who sometimes come see us and they haven't even started trying, but they have a feeling or they they need that peace of mind. And, and we're here for that. And if you need you don't need permission to seek out a reproductive endocrinologist, a, a lot of people are are scared. Um, that, oh no, I have to ask for a referral or somebody has to tell me to do this. And, and that's not the case. You you can pick up the phone, go online. Most of us have like some sort of web inquiry system you can go to. But if you're thinking you want more answers and more advice, we we are here for, for all of you. Yeah.
1: All right. So, topic of today is ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. OHSS is the abbreviation. So um, so Abby, can you tell us a little bit about what OHSS is? So it's a condition that's really kind of
0: unique to our patients that take fertility medications. And we, and technically everybody that is on fertility medicines is hyperstimulated because your ovaries are a little bit more revved up. It's only the people that are severely hyperstimulated typically that end up having to get additional care or have additional things done, but essentially it's a condition and we don't really understand it, but where the fluid kind of your blood vessels kind of leaks out kind of the fluid part into your abdominal cavity. Sometimes it can leak out into your lungs. Sometimes it's just a minor amount of fluid, and as long as you're, you know, can, you can eat and drink okay, and you can breathe okay, you know, it, it turns out to be sometimes just a nuisance that will go away in a few weeks or a few days. For people that get really severely affected, where they're really bloated and they're really having a lot of pain, or they can't breathe very well, those are the patients that we end up having to, you know, kind of see and evaluate, and potentially do some more invasive therapy. So
1: Susan, what types of fertility patients do we tend to see OHSS in?
2: When you ask that question, my mind actually diverges in two directions. So one tends to be a direction of age. So more likely to happen in women who are younger, um, although it can happen along all age groups. I mean, I've seen people with OHSS in their 40s. Um, It's less common than somebody who's in their 20s. And then when we're talking about treatments, nowadays, I would say most OHSS is going to happen in people who are using some sort of injectable therapy, either gonadotropin, IUI, inseminations or IVF for in vitro fertilization. Since I think a lot of us don't do a whole lot of injectables with IUI on younger people, except in very rare specific circumstances, I would say most severe OHSS is going to be in people doing IVF. But OHSS can even happen on people who are using oral medications. It's much rarer than if you're on injectable medications, but but it, it
1: can happen. So, Abby, what's the difference between someone having just mild OHSS versus someone having severe OHSS?
0: Well, with either one of them, usually the conditions are self-limited. I mean, it's kind of like a cold. Once you get it, we just sort of have to ride, ride it out and treat the symptoms. But people with mild OHSS really just feel kind of bloated. Sometimes they can just, they feel uncomfortable. They can be a little constipated. But typically, it's more just of a, a nuisance when it's mild. Um, When it's more moderate, sometimes there's fluid in the abdomen along with the ovaries, and that just takes up more space and makes people feel even more bloated. When it's severe, that's the situation where if there's enough fluid there, it can press on the stomach, it can cause patients to have vomiting. So occasionally, rarely, we have to put patients in the hospital and give them IV fluids. Um, Sometimes it can even, and this is even rarer, sometimes can even get into the lungs, and it's really difficult for patients to breathe. And if it's to the point where they're having difficulty sometimes we have to remove that fluid. I think with a lot of the newer drugs that we use um, to trigger patients at the very end of their injectable cycle, it's much less common and much less likely to happen now though.
2: In severe cases, there's also a chance of having electrolyte or salt imbalances that can be significant and it can increase the risk of getting blood clots. And that can sometimes even be a life-threatening condition.
1: So, what are the things that a patient sitting at home post retrieval needs to look out for if she is worried that she, you know, has OHSS, um, which is oftentimes a worry driven by? Uh, indiscriminate google searching
2: Worry due to google yes
1: yes um and and usually you know usually if any of us are really and truly concerned we'll tell our patients about it but what are the things that a patient might experience from their side of it that they should really be telling us about so that we can evaluate further so
0: if a patient has a weight gain in one day of five pounds or more, that's a concern. If you are nauseated and you're throwing up, don't think it's a virus or a GI bug. Think about us first and call us. So vomiting could be a sign of it. And shortness of breath. I mean, those are the other things. If you're having difficulty breathing, that's that can be significant.
2: Some other things to watch for, and again, these are gonna be much more rare, but leg pain, because it can be a, a sign of clotting. And just overall not feeling better and better each day. When I see patients for their retrieval, what I tell them is, today you're going to be achy and crampy. That's normal. Tomorrow you should feel better. Day after that, even better. And if you're not progressively improving and you are progressively not improving, (laughs) um, that's when you need to call your doctor. I mean, I, I I can say that, for, for most of us, when, when somebody comes in for an evaluation of OHSS, without even laying a hand on them, I am certain all three of us can probably diagnose mild, moderate, and severe yeah. just based on how somebody looks to us. <laughs> One thing I would say, too, is, you know, sometimes I'll get phone calls from
0: patients, kind of like Carrie said, people kind of be looking at Dr. Google. And so, you know, the things that you as a patient at home that could look at as well is urine output. So if you look in the toilet and your pee is really dark, that's a concern, because what that suggests is that you're drinking fluid. And it's going in your abdomen and not going out through your kidneys like it should. So, you know, certainly try and drink liquids, but just make sure that your urine looks clear. Make sure you don't look dehydrated. And then also the shortness of breath factor. Um, And just make sure you're able to keep food down too. If you're throwing up, that's a problem.
2: And knowing things that might make you high risk. So if you are young, if you have polycystic ovaries, if you had a really high estrogen level at the time of trigger, that's going to vary some, but I would say if it was greater than maybe 3,500, if you did not have a Lupron trigger, if you had an HCG trigger, that's going to increase your risk. Or if your doctor mentioned that you already had some fluid in your abdomen at the time of your egg retrieval, that's also a sign that some OHSS can be brewing.
0: Well, and like Susan mentioned, too, you know, the trigger type is really important because up until at least a few years ago in our practice, maybe four or five years ago, we would always use a trigger with HCG. And I will tell you that there is a certain population of patients that that just sets them off and puts them into hyperstimulation syndrome. So I think most clinics do two things differently now. That is most clinics trigger with Lupron. So for some reason, Lupron kind of shuts that down. The other thing that we do much differently now that we didn't do, say, five or six years ago, most patients don't have a fresh transfer. So most patients have a couple of weeks. Their ovaries have time to settle down. Their estrogen level drops down. Um, Whereas back five or six years ago, if we transferred an embryo in somebody who already was at our high risk for OHSS and then they also got pregnant, that was sort of a second factor that would kind of rev it back up. And so I think the fact that we mostly do um, frozen transfers, you know, six weeks, eight weeks later after your ovaries have had time to settle down really has dramatically decreased our our chances of getting your chance of getting that.
2: When I was in fellowship, my very first patient I ever saw in the hospital was due to what we call late onset OHSS, which I I mean, quite honestly, I don't think I've seen a case of late onset since I left fellowship, Um, but that's essentially people were kind of on the edge of it. They ended up getting pregnant on a fresh embryo transfer. And then we're kind of stuck managing symptoms because it'll eventually get better. But the pregnancy hormone, as we mentioned, HCG is what kind of revs this all up. And that's climbing, climbing, climbing and can make OHSS more severe. And I like that we don't have to deal with that much anymore. I like that
0: too. But the one positive side of that, I'll say, when you saw somebody coming in that had those symptoms, even if they didn't have the symptoms before, right before the pregnancy test, you knew almost without testing they were pregnant and here's the other thing girls i don't know if you know this or not but when you when you tap somebody and you take their fluid out you can actually put their fluid on a card and, you, and it'll it'll be positive you can tell that they're pregnant from their ohss fluid oh my goodness interesting <laughs> never did that definitely never did yeah. that so Fortunately, we don't see people like that anymore, but sometimes people would get really sick and you, you just
1: know they were pregnant and and they 99% of the time they were. I think one of the important points to drive home to our listeners is that all of us throughout the, certainly throughout the years that we did training earlier in our careers, OHSS was far, far more common. Now with the presence of Lupron trigger, and freeze all strategies, it is a very rare event. And so now the, the types of people who are complaining of OHSS symptoms that we listen to, when I compare them to the patients I took care of in fellowship, for example, 10 years ago, the the symptoms that the women now are complaining of they're they're uncomfortable to be sure. Uh, but it is in such a different category. It's not even funny. like we took care of I, patients in the ICU because that was the appropriate place for them. And now, you know, knock on wood, haven't had to hospitalize a patient for OHSs in you know seven years, eight years, something like that, um, because of the types of triggers that we use. And and your doctors are looking for that. They they don't want you to be in the hospital any more than you want to be in the hospital. And so we all tend to be really cautious with how we give our. Our triggers, you know, we titrate our HCG levels so that we're not giving you a full dose. If we can get away with a third of the dose, we're giving a dual Lupron trigger or a solo Lupron trigger. You know, are there any other medicines, techniques, anything like that, that, that you guys do when you have someone who comes in and has that kind of mild case? So we
2: often use a combination of a pill called cabergoline, mm-hmm. and we may do that for about a week and then continuing either the cetratide or ganarelics um, over that time period, um, just helping to squelch that hormonal activity that can be propagating it. Um, there's some reasonable data to say that it can help kind of shorten the course, maybe lessen the severity of things a little bit sooner. On the easy side is, you know, stick to things that are electrolyte drinks. Everybody wants to drink water because it's healthy and everything like that. This is actually one time we don't encourage people to drink drink straight water because your blood vessels are leaky. and or at least to alternate
0: with water. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Exactly. And so we need some of those salts um, to kind of hold the fluid where it needs to be.
1: Pedialyte is great for that.
2: Yeah. And letting your doctors know sooner than later. Okay. And and like I said, if you're not gradually getting better, that's not normal. And us being able to help you with OHSS is is something that it's easier for us to do. Sometimes you might need to have some fluid drained out of your belly. Um, Just having some of that fluid also has some good data to say that it helps shorten the course and lessens the symptoms. And sometimes takes a little bit of a village to get you all taken care of. But most people have, have good outcomes even after experiencing this.
0: I find mostly now when people, now that we do Lupron triggers more, mostly the patients that I see are patients that are worried about it. But once I actually see them and I say, yeah, you know, your ovaries are the size, normally the size of a walnut. You know, you're the day after your egg retrieval, your ovaries are the size of an orange or a grapefruit. And it's kind of like trying to stuff your shoe or your foot in a shoe That's two sizes too small. Your ovaries are stuffed in there and you feel bloated and they're rubbing up against your abdominal wall and it's just uncomfortable. And so I always really advise my patients to take the day after the egg retrieval off just to kind of relax and not be moving around at work because it's just, it's uncomfortable. And I think the other thing that's helpful for me when patients come in is If they've monitored their weight every day and kept track of their weight and also abdominal circumference, as long as you measure the same part of your abdomen every day, that's, you know, when we used to hospitalize patients, those were the two big things that we would look at each day when we came in was how much weight has a patient gained and what's her abdominal circumference. So those things would be helpful to have for your doctor. But most of the time when I see people that are really worried about it, it's more just I give them reassurance and I'll say, we're going to get you through this. Just, you know, have you come back until we know that this is completely resolved but I would say 99% of the time now, most people, you know, are able to, to do well. And I think once you give them reassurance that it's going to go away, um, usually
1: they're they're fine. Mm-hmm. One of the really functional things to help people feel better after a retrieval, and this is true whether you're at risk for hyperstim or not, is... Sleep on an incline, because if you've got some pillows stacked up behind you or you're sleeping in a recliner, that means that any of the free fluid that's gathered there um, can can stay down in your lower pelvis because it's going to be there anyway. If you lay down flat, what it'll do is it's got the, the possibility of tracking up higher in your belly and it can hit your diaphragm. And when it does that, it's going to really tick it off and you get the shoulder (laughs) shoulder pain that hurts like none other. Um, And it also makes taking a deep breath much more challenging because you really don't want to expand the feeling is you don't want to expand your belly and drop your diaphragm down because that's going to compress the space. And so if you sleep on an incline, it oftentimes really makes you you feel better. Same with preventing constipation because that fluid can slow down the natural passage of bowel contents out into the world. And people do not give enough credit to just how miserable that can make you. Um, And so, so I tell a lot of people, you know, take Miralax, take a stool softener of some sort, as well as maintaining your fluid intake so that just comfort wise, you feel a little bit better because constipation won't kill you, but sometimes you'll sure as heck wish it would. Um, (laughs) And people don't give that enough credit for just the misery it can cause. So. Any other thoughts about hyperstimulation, how to prevent it, how to better manage it, how to deal with the anxiety that Googling it brings? (laughs) Actually now, probably the worst thing that I encounter.
2: Yeah. I I think the the biggest thing is realize that true serious OHSS nowadays is pretty darn rare. Okay. Call your doctor sooner than later because we'd rather know what's going on and know that OHS is a self-limited, self-correcting condition, but sometimes you need some help until that happens. And that's what
1: we're good at. Absolutely. All right. Well, it was lovely to talk with both of you today. I always enjoy our afternoons together and to our audience. Thank you so much for listening and be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review in iTunes. We would love to hear from you. You can also visit
2: FertilityDocsUncensored.com to schedule an appointment with any of us or submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be a- answered on the podcast anonymously for our Ask the Doc segment. So don't hold back. We love to answer your questions and please feel free to give us any ideas for segments you'd like to hear.
0: All right. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.